Welcome to this podcast brought to you by the Pod Academy, the first in a series on faith and non-belief in contemporary society in partnership with the Rationalist Association. I'm Casper Melville, editor of New Humanist magazine, and today I'll be talking to Alam Shaha, author of The Young Atheist Handbook, about why he gave up Islam and why he thinks it's important that Muslims who no longer believe say so. So Alam, uh, your book is a kind of combination of of a kind of intellectual journey to non-belief, but you also mix it up with your with stories about your life, or in fact, the, the story of your life. So I just wanted you to set the scene. Just tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what your family was like. So I was born in Bangladesh in 1973, just shortly after Bangladesh came into existence, actually, because uh, just a couple of years previously, it was East Pakistan. And it was at a time when the British economy was booming, uh, which probably none of our listeners will remember, but the British government had gone out to its former colonies and basically asked people to, to come over to Britain to do jobs like driving buses, working in factories and so forth. Uh, and my dad was one of thousands of Bangladeshi men from uh, our region of Bangladesh, Silet, who, who came over uh, and took on these jobs. So my father's first job was in uh, the Ford factory in Dagenham. And he worked away in the factory for a few years uh, until he could save enough money to fly my mother and, and uh, me over. We stayed with other family who had arrived here before, so um, we, we stayed in a room belonging to a family in Brixton and then uh, another room belonging to, to an uncle in Elephant and Castle. And eventually we were given our own council flat uh, on the same estate. And I, I ended up going to a school in South London and um, with lots of other Bangladeshi kids, but also lots of other white kids and black kids and Chinese kids and and the, the kind of very diverse community that South London was back then and still is today, um, which was exciting and, and fun, of course. But in the in the 70s, racism was much more of a, an obvious problem, I would say, than, than it is now. And, and um, the, we lived in Elephant and Castle, which wasn't very far from Bermondsey, which was... Uh, kind of heartland for the National Front and just open racism was kind of acceptable back then. It wasn't like today where you would never see people openly racially abuse each other on the street. Kind of, I don't think there are gangs of white youths walking around looking for uh, non-whites to beat up these days. But, but you experienced but that when we, you were we experienced young. That. When I was young, you know, one of one of the worst things about living in South uh, South London was that there were these gangs of white youths who used to actively seek out uh, Asians and black people to, to beat up. Um, and I, I witnessed uh, people getting beaten up. Um, I, I saw some some really horrendous uh, incidents, actually, including on one occasion three or four white guys kicking down the front door of one of my friend's houses and going in and beating up his whole family, which was just kind of almost unimaginable. And nobody did anything to stop it. And, you know, it, it, they and they lived upstairs. They lived on the same block of flats and, and there weren't any kind of repercussions. I don't remember the police getting involved or anything. So in this context, presumably, the idea of community becomes especially important. What kind of a community were you part of? If you were part of a community there, I mean, was there a Bangladeshi community amongst within this? It's funny because I actually think I was part of many communities. So yes, I was part of the Bangladeshi immigrant community on the estate, but at the same time, I was part of the primary school community. I was part of that community of children who went to that primary school and and who were part of a community with their teachers and other staff at the school. 
and I was part of the community on the estate as a whole. So, you know, yes, the Bangladeshi community, I would say, was a subset of the community of people who lived in those circumstances. You know, we lived side by side with white people, a lot of Irish immigrants as well. Although race was something which divided us in, in many ways, uh, we still had lots in common, particularly our poverty, with the other members of the, the community of the estate, if you like. Well, we're going to talk about your involvement in other communities in a minute, but just staying with the Bangladeshi community, what percentage of the Bangladeshi community were Muslim? I think pretty much 100% of the Bangladeshi community uh, were Muslim. I, I don't recall any non-Muslim members of the Bangladeshi community. But how important was Islam to the community that you've talked about, the Bangladeshi community, or how central? Just talk about how it you know, impacted or came into your daily life. I guess you didn't think about it as a child because it was just always there. You know, we were expected to go to the mosque. We said, for example, before eating, we would say Bismillah, you know, and it was just part of our culture to 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 have these bits of Islam embedded in our everyday life. We celebrated Eid. My parents fasted, as did all the other adults during Ramadan. So, we, you know, as a child, I knew I was a Muslim because that's what I had been told I was, and that's what those things that I did in my life uh, relating to Islam made me believe I was. So at what point did you start having doubts about that or, or questioning it? What, what were the triggers for that? It's really interesting because I don't think I can remember a single dramatic moment when I questioned the existence of God. I just have this, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to accurately remember your childhood, I think, but I, I do recall a sense of unease with what I was being told about God. Um, and I also remember one particular incident where I felt a, a deep sense of injustice, and that was you know, being in the mosque and being told that the, the white kids and the black kids that we played with were going to burn in hell. I, I distinctly remember that. And um, I've said this in public before, uh, and I've had people say, well, that's not what Islam says. And you know, I have very little respect for those kind of arguments when people say, well, that's not the true version of Islam or whatever. I find if I, it's because religion is practised however it is practised and, and different people have different takes on it. And it just happened to be that as a child I was told that non-Muslims uh, uh, would burn in hell. That's what I was told by people in authority. And, and I think children have uh, a kind of highly tuned sense of justice. And so when we think something is unfair, we, we, it really upsets us. And, and I thought, as a child, as a very young child, I thought this notion that my friends, and I, I love these kids, you know, I really, I, I really love my friends as a child, that, that these children, like me, would burn in hell because they happen to be different in this way. And also, I, I, didn't, I don't think I really believed in this God, and I just didn't think it was that big a deal. And I thought it was very mean, I guess, that these other human beings that I knew and loved would, would, would burn in hell. And as a child, you know, I think I did... It seems kind of designed to, to <clears throat> instill fear. Yeah, and, and I, I find it... Uh, I think it's disingenuous of people to claim that religion doesn't do this because, the, you know, everybody's heard of hell and most people will tell you that as a child they had this concept of hell as this place where you burn for eternity. So, you know, that, that idea didn't appear in my head by itself. I was told that. I, th I think... I mean, the truth is... I'm, you know, I'm 38 years old and I've, I've only really just come out now in that I'm, I'm making this big, it seems I'm making this big deal about it because I've written this book. 
but you know I've been an atheist for a very long time but I, I've just never had occasion to kind of stand up in public and say it because before I wrote this book I didn't think there was any need to do so and, and my feelings on this have changed you know I, I grew up like loads of people just kind of accepting the identity that was given to me by my parents and, and just accepting that you know I was a Muslim but I grew more and more uncomfortable with that as a label as as as, a, as part of my identity uh, to the extent that today you know I have actively rejected it but I think lots of people just kind of passively accept uh, the the religious identity that they're they're born with so it's not just Muslims I think particularly in my experience a lot of Catholics find it really hard to say that they're not Catholic even though they're atheist and and there's that classic joke about uh, kind of Irish uh, guy at the border control being asked uh, what what religion are you in? and he says I'm an atheist and the guy says but are you a, a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist you know so I, I think there's some of that going on I talk about this in my book I, I think things changed after 9-11 I think I think uh, the Muslim identity in particular was one that people from Muslim backgrounds felt that they had to bring to the fore that they they, they you know that they were being seen as Muslims first and foremost and therefore I think a lot of them started to think of themselves as Muslims first and foremost but I want to be very careful about you know not trying to explain away other people's actions but for you in particular it was what happened to your mother for me what happened you know I think my book is quite a political book in that it's telling people to be honest about the the, the identities that they hold and so forth but I, I also think that for a lot of people who don't do what I've done you know there's no need for them they might not feel any need to do it and but one of the reasons why a lot of people just maintain the, the the labels that they've been given is is they don't want to reject their heritage from their parents um from their community you know if i'm brutally honest i think the fact that my, my mother died when i was very young and and that i didn't have a very good relationship with my father you know the fact that there weren't adults that i needed to to please or adults who i would shame by rejecting you know this particular aspect of my identity made it easier for me and so, so I'm very empathetic of people from all faiths, you know, Muslims, Jews, Christians, who, who are atheists but feel that they don't want to make a song and dance about it, they don't want to be public about it because it might upset their parents. So I totally understand that. Uh, in the book you talk, you, you combine the story of your, of your young life and, and your coming to a position of godlessness, if we can call it that, but you, uh, with, with a discussion of different kinds of arguments. Do you want just, what, what were some of the, the resources that you drew on when you were kind of thinking your way at, you know, out of Islam and into wherever you are now? Well, we know you're an atheist, but I mean, think, what, what were some of the important books or, or people or you know, uh, things that, that you used to think your way forward? It's really funny. I don't, I don't know if the, the book gives the impression that I thought myself out of religion in some kind of organised manner, because I, I don't think I did. And um, I, I actually think A.C. Grayling writes in the foreword about how you feel uncomfortable with the idea of God and then you come to the intellectual arguments um, as to why you feel uncomfortable. Um, and I, I think he's hit the nail on the head. I, I think I, I always felt uncomfortable with the idea of God. And then as you grow up, you, you, you read, you encounter other ideas, and you can kind of find ways of articulating the reasons why that sense of uncomfortableness might have existed. It's weird because I think lots of atheists go out there presenting themselves as these supremely rational beings who 
uh, maybe have these incredibly powerful intellectual arguments. And I, I, I think ultimately I'm saying that I didn't feel that God was true. And what do you make of, I mean, you are, you're, professionally you have been involved in TV, making documentaries, but science has always been a really important part of what you do and you're now a physics teacher. What part did science play in, I mean, you're very passionate about science. I mean, I don't know if you'd say you believe in science or, or you're, you know, you find there's a kind of enchantment. I mean, Richard Dawkins sometimes talks about the enchantment of the, you know, the science, scientific stories, the, the version of the universe that you get from science. Did that have an influence here or is that in any way giving you a framework other than a religious framework? I think a lot of people might think you're an atheist because you're a scientist. And I know, and I know a lot of my students might think that. And young people often think if you enjoy science, if you like science, then you're, you, that's going to make you an atheist. I think it's the other way around for me. I think I, as a young child, I didn't like the kind of explanations that religious teachings offered about how the world worked and so forth. And, and so I think the fact that I was an atheist as a child fundamentally, is what drew me towards science. I think that I found the explanations of science more satisfying. Now, uh, tell me about, um, you're a passionate person, but you, you're, I'm not sure you describe yourself as a new atheist. Well, how, how would you respond if someone called you a militant atheist? You, you feel, it's, it's as if you feel quite militant about certain aspects of atheism. You've written a book and your book says, listen, if you don't believe in God, stand up and say it. Why do you think that's an important thing to say? Do you feel militant about that? And if so, why? I think the word militant can be used in different ways, sometimes to be an insult. And I wasn't insulting you. No, I know. So I don't, I, don't, I don't accept that I'm a militant atheist because I think when people say that they are intending it as an insult um, and that they're intending it as a negative thing, I absolutely believe in secularism and I absolutely believe that the world would be a better place if all the humans who didn't actually believe in God just said so and that we then proceeded to build societies and ways of life that revolved around the assumption that there isn't a god and that there are no divine guidelines for how to live our lives i, I just think we, we would live in a better world because of that i may be wrong and i think if i was a militant atheist i wouldn't say that but you have very specific cases which you've mentioned in the book and also in the piece that you wrote for new humanist about people that you really think in a way, you're saying you'd like, you're on a mission to free people or at least open up opportunities for certain people who don't have them. I mean, who, who's, who's suffering here, I suppose, is what I should say. Do you think people are suffering? I do, I do think people are suffering. I think, you know, I know that people are suffering. So one of the things uh, I do is I, I meet with a, a number of uh, ex-Muslims who live in London, many of whom are not openly ex-Muslim. And some of them have appalling stories about how their lives are kind of compromised, the quality of their lives are compromised by not being able to be honest about their lack of belief. And I find that sad. I, I don't want to live in a society where people can't be honest about what they believe. It seems to me that it should be a fundamental human right to be able to, to be who you want to be and, and not be frightened uh, of being ostracised from your community or worse, for simply being honest. It really... It saddens me that there is a cost to being honest about how you feel about the way the world is. You've had quite a response to your book already. I mean, which is, is only is going to be published in July, or is published in July. Well, the book's already been published in Australia, so uh, Australians have been reading it, and remarkably, actually, people from all over the world have been getting hold of the Australian edition. And 
I'm happy at this point to say that, that I haven't really had any negative response. But what I have had are some wonderful emails from people around the world saying thank you for writing your book. And, and actually, I, I can't really tell you how wonderful that is. You've made things, you know, you produce a magazine and I used to make TV programs and short films and whatnot. And you want people to, to watch your stuff and engage with it. Um, but it's quite rare that, you know, one's work moves people to the extent that they feel that they have to tell you that it moved them and, and thank you for making it. And that's, I can't, I, I'm finding it hard to express how wonderful that is for me. But also I feel that I've done something useful, uh, you know, and, and that's what these people are telling me. You, you know, you've done something useful by, by writing your book. And, and I, I'm kind of, I guess... You know, we're all trying to make sense of our lives and find meaning and purpose and so forth. And for me, one way of making my life make sense is to do useful things. And I feel that if I'm doing useful stuff out there, then maybe my life isn't entirely meaningless. So, One of the other kinds of responses you've been getting is where atheists say to you, don't be ridiculous. Atheism isn't anything other than not believing in God. Why are you trying to make it, you know, make it a movement or... But you have a, you actually have quite a strong line on this, and you have quite a strong thing that you want to say to to atheists and humanists and organisations like the Rationist Association that I run. I think it's absolutely ridiculous to suggest that there isn't an atheist community. Um, you just have to look around um, uh, on the internet, and you'll see that there are lots of online communities of atheists getting together and uh, kind of discussing things. And, and by definition, that is a community. Uh, recently, there was an international atheist convention with kind of thousands of people descending on Melbourne to, to listen to Dawkins and others. So those are things communities do. And so if it looks like a community and it smells like a community, then it is a community. So I, I completely dismiss the notion that there is no such thing as an atheist community. However, I think the atheist community should be as diverse as humanity, because I think atheism, the not believing in God, is something that people from all backgrounds, from all kind of cultural backgrounds, racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, whatever. I think people from all backgrounds are capable of not believing in God. If we accept that there is an atheist community, and I've explained why we absolutely have to accept that there is, then the representatives of that community need to reflect the diversity of atheists. And just because it's more difficult for atheists from certain backgrounds. So, for example, I think it's more difficult for atheists from Muslim backgrounds to be openly atheists. I don't think we should not have those atheists represented in the kind of public faiths of atheism in just the same way that, you know, there is a public face of Islam or a public face of Christianity and Catholicism or whatever. I think we have public faces of atheism and unlike Islam and Catholicism and so forth, atheism is truly global and truly diverse. And so I think the, we should see that in the way that atheism is, is discussed and presented in the public sphere. It, it's not a good thing for any uh, movement, particularly the atheist movement, to be represented solely by you know, rich old white guys. That's not a good thing. You know, if you go to public events and, and you see um, on any subject, you know, say you go to a public discussion about some aspect of science or some aspect of political theory or whatever and the panel makeup is for old white guys you know that that panel is not representative you know that there must be women out there who have something to say about this you know that there must be black people out there who have something to say about this i feel that we should 
represent the diversity of non-believers in the public face of atheism. And there is a public face of atheism. And, and anyone who says there isn't is just being disingenuous. But now, really tell me, um, where do we go from here? What would you like to see? What are you doing? I know you're doing loads. What are you doing? I am involved with an organisation called the Three Faiths Forum, where I go into school and I stand up in front of school children and I, I, I tell a very brief story about why I'm a humanist and why I'm an atheist. And what's astonishing is, I think, the number of children who have never thought that actually they cannot be part of the religion of their parents, that they can actually choose to be a humanist or an atheist, that it's an option for them. I think a lot of young people don't think it's an option for for reasons uh, that I've kind of touched on, but mostly, I guess, that the religious identity we're born into is is one that we're, we're kind of brainwashed into believing in from from a very young age. It's it's so central to our identity that to even question it is is not something a lot of people do. So one of the things I feel I can do is ju- is just show that rejecting the religion of your parents is an option. So let's be very clear. I'm not going out there and saying to kids reject the religion of your parents. I'm not telling them to do that. What do you think are the prospects? I mean, you talk about you meet up with a group of, of ex-Muslims, you describe them, um, who some of whom are out as atheists and some of whom aren't. I mean, what are the prospects for this taking off or, or, or being able to build this kind of thing? I mean, it strikes me that there must be there would be a lot of resistance from, let's say, the Bangladeshi community or other religious communities. What, what will it take to that people in your situation, you know, in 10 or 15 years hence would be able to, would find it easy, easier than, than people now or than you did now? I think it takes numbers. I think um, we have to reach a kind of critical mass of numbers of people who have just said, I'm Bangladeshi, but I don't really want to be thought of as a Muslim anymore. I don't think of myself as a Muslim anymore. And just people coming out and saying that. But as I've said before, you know, it's not as easy as that for lots of people because that might mean being disowned by your family. It might mean, as I know in some cases, the breakup of your marriage, you know, because it's considered so fundamental to, to, to your culture or whatever. But I, I think if it stops being a big deal, then more and more people will come out. And it will only stop being a big deal when there is a, a big enough number of people who who, who make that leap, who, who, who think, you know what, I, I don't want to to live like this anymore I don't want to pretend anymore and actually I'll pay whatever price I need to pay to, to be honest to myself and, your... and sorry I just have to say one more thing uh, you know I really know that I am not paying a very big price I know that you know my, my brothers and sisters are all like me they're all atheists there's nobody no immediate family that's going to get upset because I don't have any other immediate family you know and I'm not bringing shame or onto anybody else so I just want to make it very clear that I'm not judging those people who choose not to come out Let me ask you about another aspect of that which is in your piece for New Humanist you start off by saying I'm being told I'm very brave for doing this now one aspect would be I'm going against the community the other thing is of course the perception that it's dangerous to come out and say things about Islam I certainly expect that I'm going to get some emails from people who say rude things about me, but I think I'd get that, whatever I was talking about. I think that's just... Welcome to the internet. That's right. I think there's an unfortunate kind of myth that's been created that, you know, if you say anything 
that can be perceived in any way derogatory about Islam, then uh, somebody's going to try and kill you. That, that, that myth has come about because of stories like what happened in the Netherlands with that guy, Theo Van Gogh, and what happened with Salman Rushdie and so forth. And the Muslim cartoons as well. Yeah. Right. OK, so there have been incidents where uh, there, there has been a, a kind of violent response from a tiny minority of Islamists. But if you actually look around the internet or newspapers or magazines or books, there's plenty of people who are critiquing Islam or who, who say things that some Muslims might find offensive and so forth. And, and those people get on with their lives perfectly happily. You know, one of the people I admire the most is Kenan Malik. And, you know, he's been incredibly critical of Islamists and written about the Rushdie affair, for, for example. And, and as far as I know, he hasn't received any death threats. If people read my book, they're going to absolutely struggle to find anything negative about Islam in there. I, I, I th it's not an anti-Islamic book. It's, it's hardly an anti-religion book, to be honest. It's more a pro-atheism, pro-humanism book. I, I certainly I don't think I'm being provocative in any way. And I, I actually think that people will struggle to take offence at anything I'm saying. You know, this is uh, what, what I find problematic is the notion that, you know, someone like me uh, from a Muslim background says he's not Muslim and, and that there's an immediate assumption by people who should really know better that somehow I'm incredibly brave or that my life is going to be in danger and this kind of nonsense. And it's just perpetuating a negative stereotype of Muslims. And I have a problem with that. I think, you know, I know lots of Muslims and they're not like the Muslims that the, the sun or whatever would want you to, to, to believe exist. So, you know, I, I'm really determined to, to counter that kind of uh, media portrayal of Muslims. I think it's a, it's a really negative thing. I think it feeds Islamophobia. Um, and it reminds me of the kind of racism that I experienced as a kid where, you know, people leapt to conclusions about who you were and what you were just because you were brown. And, and we're kind of doing the same thing now with Muslims. We're saying, you know, there's these group of people, they're called Muslims and they behave like this, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Muslims come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and colours and, and they hold all sorts of different views, actually. And it's only a tiny minority, I think, who respond in these kind of extreme ways. Um, unfortunately, it's that tiny minority that the, the press uh, seem to give attention to. Well, you've been very brave coming in and talking to me about it, so thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast. There's a transcript and links to more information on our website, podacademy.org, where you'll also find lots more podcasts on a wide range of subjects from bells to bees and rap to Charles Dickens. Mm -hmm.